Please take your copies of the Word of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Brother Austin McCormick told me Friday night at the particular Baptist fellowship that he wants to throw me a party when I finally finish 1 Corinthians. And I said, well, get it ready, brother. Send the invitations out because we're on the home stretch. We're in chapter 15 and Lord willing won't be very long before we are done with this epistle. The Lord has taught us so much in this epistle. I'm very thankful for His goodness to us through this exposition and certainly <clears throat> thankful to now be at the pinnacle of this mountain in chapter 15. Our text this morning is chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 11. These are the words of God. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. In the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, the apostle shares the deep and precious burden of his heart to grow in his knowledge of and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that beautiful chapter in Philippians, Paul articulates his desire in this way. In verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This profound statement caused me to ask the question, what does it mean to know the power of of his resurrection. What was it that Paul wanted to know? I don't believe that Paul just wanted to know a theological explanation for how it was so that Christ rose from the dead. I don't believe that Paul simply wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection as it pertains to the eschatological event on the last day when Christ returns and the dead are raised. Now I believe that when Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, I believe that Paul was telling us that he wanted to know the power of his resurrection as it was demonstrated presently in his life. Paul wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection through its effects on his heart and his soul. Paul wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection as it was manifested in his own salvation. It was the resurrection power of Christ that rose Saul of Tarsus from spiritual death on the Damascus road, caused him to walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Christ was not an abstract theological concept for the Apostle Paul. Do you understand that? 
The resurrection of Christ was the reality of a power that was operative in his life. And in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is delving in to the resurrection power of Christ and the remarkable impact that it had upon his life and his ministry. The whole world was changed when one man rose from the dead. Now, as we remember the context of chapter 15, and as we think about Paul's goal in this chapter, which is what? To provide a theological doctrinal defense of the resurrection over against those in the Corinthian church who were denying the resurrection, we might find it strange that Paul would, he would interrupt this seamless historical and theological defense with a personal anecdote. That's what these verses are. They're a personal anecdote. He's talking about himself in this text. We might even be tempted to think that these verses are a bit out of place. After all, Paul spent the first eight verses of this chapter talking about the gospel, talking about the components of the gospel, and then explaining to us how the resurrection is one of those vital components. And then he, he lists several compelling historical proofs of the resurrection. Remember, he goes through this list of eyewitnesses. We looked at that last week. And now we come to verse 9. And we find Paul interjecting a word of personal testimony. Apparently, Paul never took a college writing class, right? Because if you've taken a college writing class, you know that personal testimony does not bear as much weight in an argument as objective historical facts. And it would be really poor writing to interrupt historical theological facts with a word of personal testimony, right? Well, brothers and sisters, in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 15, Paul is not merely sharing his feelings about the resurrection. Paul is not giving his opinion about the resurrection, as it were. Paul is not casually telling us what he thinks about the resurrection. Paul is testifying to the power of the resurrection at work in his life. And that, brothers and sisters, is an objective, undeniable fact. I would go so far as to say that this is the most compelling piece of evidence for the resurrection that Paul presents to the Corinthian church. It's as if he comes to verse 9 and he says, if you discount the historical evidence, if you don't believe the eyewitnesses, then all you have to do is look at me to see the irrefutable proof of the resurrection. The only reason why Saul of Tarsus, this man who hated Christians, this man who persecuted the church, the only reason why he became Paul the Apostle who devoted his life to preaching the gospel and ministering to the saints is because Jesus rose from the grave. And if you are a Christian whose life has been changed by the grace of God, that's the only reason why you are what you are. The strongest proof of the resurrection is the practical effect that it has upon the lives of believers. It changes the way we perceive ourselves. 
It changes the way we think about who we were before God saved us and who we are now as believers in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, Paul shows us how we ought to think of ourselves, how we ought to to see ourselves in light of the resurrection. And so I ask you, as we dive into this text, do you have a resurrection perspective? Have you shaped your belief about who you are around the reality of Christ's past resurrection, your future resurrection, and the present power of His resurrection at work in your life? Thus far in chapter 15, we have seen Paul's doctrinal and historical defense of the resurrection, but now we will see the practical impact that the truth of the resurrection has upon us who believe. So there's four things that I want to show you from this text. The first, beginning in verse 9, is I want you to see the reflection. The reflection. Paul begins by, by reflecting on who he was. He says in verse 9, he says, for, and again, you know that the word for often indicates an explanation of what was previously said. That's how our text began last Sunday, right? In verse 3, Paul begins with the word for to tell us that he's about to explain what he said in verses 1 and 2. Okay, well, we get to verse 9 and we see the word for again. And that tells us that Paul is about to explain what he said in verse 8 when he referred to himself as an apostle born out of due time. Let me remind you that the phrase that Paul used in verse 8 to identify himself as the last of the apostles was a very derogatory term. The phrase, one born out of due time, comes from a Greek word that could be translated as a baby that has an untimely birth. It was a word used to speak of premature birth. It was also a word used to speak of miscarried babies. So Paul is, in this text, referring to himself as a miscarriage. Paul is, in a sense, saying, I should have never, ever, ever taken the position of an apostle. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God has called him to this ministry. But in, in human terms, he, he's saying, I'm the, I'm the last person. No one was more surprised by the conversion of of Saul than Saul. And no one was more surprised by the calling of Paul into the ministry than Paul. He's using this pejorative term to express his unworthiness to be an apostle. So the question is, well, Paul, why do you think yourself to be so unworthy? That's what he's going to tell us in verse 9. There's a reflection. He says, I am the least of all the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle. We see from this personal testimony that Paul possessed a dose of true humility that is often missing from those in positions of authority and influence. To put it simply, Paul was not the kind of guy that drank his own bath water. Paul didn't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror to sing, How Great Thou Art. He had what a lot of preachers don't have, and that's an honest view of himself. 
This sort of humility is essential for anyone who wants to be greatly used of God, and it can only be produced by the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. Because naturally, the Bible tells us, all of us, all of us, all of us, you and me, think far too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Pride is a cancerous disease in the heart of a Christian. It's the idolatry of self. That's what it is. One of the things that the Lord has taught me is that my ministry can survive a bad sermon. And my church can survive my foolish mistakes. But I cannot survive pride. Because pride will kill you. And I have seen pride kill many a Christian. Ruin their testimony. Make them essentially useless to the church. In fact, worse than useless. Make them more of a harm to the church than a blessing. All because of pride. There are many things in the Christian life that may injure you. But pride is a killer. Satan didn't fall from heaven because he thought he was the lowest of all the angels. So we must pray sincerely that God would give us an honest view of ourselves. But, but make no mistake about this, brothers and sisters. We need to understand what humility is. Humility is not uncertainty. Uh, oftentimes we, we confuse humility with uncertainty. We think if someone's humble, they're not going to be sure about anything, right? And we think that if someone is sure about something, and if they are dogmatic, perhaps about a point of doctrine, that must mean that they're proud. But, but see, Paul teaches us that we can and we should be bold in our biblical convictions while also being humble in our character. Paul would have not been humble if he would have said, well, you know, uh, the resurrection, I mean, I, I believe it, but if you don't want to believe it, uh, you know, that's not humility, that's cowardice. So Paul, on the one hand, bold, valiant for the truth, and on the other hand, humble and loving in his demeanor. Oh, may God allow us to be so. Paul teaches us, that we should be both. And he is a great example for us all. The greatest preacher and the greatest theologian in the history of the church was also the most humble Christian. Well, why did Paul have such a low view of himself? Why did he say, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle? He tells us in verse 9, he says, Because I persecuted the church of God. It was a painful awareness of who he was before God saved him that fostered this remarkable degree of humility in Paul's life. Charles Hodge says this, quote, Those of his children whom God intends to exalt to posts of honor and power, he commonly prepares for their elevation by leading them to such a knowledge of their sinfulness as to keep them constantly abased. In other words, to whom God gives the most grace and opportunity and privilege, he also must give the most affliction. 
We esteem the Apostle Paul very highly, and as well we should. We would consider him, uh, in terms of men go, we, I mean, if there was a Mount Rushmore of heroes of the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul would have to be front and center on that mountain, wouldn't he? But you need to remember that before God saved him, Saul of Tarsus was an exceedingly wicked man. Who was Saul? By the way, you know that Saul and Paul, it's, it's not that God changed his name after he was saved. It's just that Saul was, his, was a Hebrew version of his name and Paul was a Greek version of his name. And of course, he would go by Paul because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Okay, just want to throw that in there. He was an exceedingly wicked man before God saved him. He, he was a, a terrorist. Do you understand that? I mean, he wasn't just a, you know, somebody that, that, that maybe told a lie every now and then and got drunk on the weekends and didn't go to church and didn't read his Bible like he should. He killed people. He was every bit as vile as a Muslim jihadist. That's, that's what he was before God saved him. His life's work was to travel around the known world destroying churches and putting Christians to death. Do you know the first time Paul is mentioned in the Bible? You know what he's doing? He's holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. The worst part of it all was that Paul thought he was doing those things in service to God. See, it's one thing to do evil. It's another thing to do evil and then attribute it to God. He made a career out of killing Christians. And he thought he was doing God a favor. And this memory of his past haunted him for the rest of his life. Oh, yes, he knew he was forgiven. He knew he was forgiven. He knew that his sins were completely paid for by the blood of Christ. He had full assurance of his salvation. He knew he was going to die and go to heaven, but he never forgot who he was. Can you relate? Can you relate to Paul? Do we not all have memories of sins that we've committed? And we know they're forgiven. We know that, that, that the blood of Christ has covered them. But they still bother us, don't they? When we think about them, when we think about what we used to be, the filth that we used to waller around in. Listen to me, Christian. Perhaps someone who is not a Christian, listen to me. Don't do something that will haunt you for the rest of your life because you know that God will forgive you for it. That is a dastardly abuse of God's grace. In fact, if you think that way, it really testifies that you don't know anything about grace. Our sins may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean that we will forget them. But notice this also, brothers and sisters. Paul knew what he was. He knew what a wretched sinner he was. But this knowledge of his sinfulness did not produce within him a morbid, hopeless guilt. So don't forget who you were, but you don't have to walk around depressed and guilty about who you were. The memory of his former sinfulness didn't cripple him, it empowered him. 
He, he recognized what a great sinner he was, and therefore he recognized how sweet and amazing grace is. The reason why many Christians today don't have a high view of grace is because they, they have a very low view of their sins. If you think that you were just a pretty good person and you were doing all right and you just needed a little bit of help and, you know, God, you were, you were basically on the right track. God just had to come along and kind of help you out a little bit on a few areas of your life. If that's how you view your salvation, you are going to have a very low view of grace. But if you see your sins for how awful and filthy and vile that they truly were, then you will see God's grace for how amazing and how precious and how awesome it really is. So there's a reflection here in this passage as Paul reminisces a little bit about who he was. But then also I want you to see, in verse 10, there's a recreation. There's a recreation. In verse 9, Paul speaks about himself in the past tense. But in verse 10, he begins to speak about himself in the present tense. And he says, that's what I was, but it's not what I am. Because in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says, I know what I am by nature. I know what I am when I'm left to myself. I know I'm a murderer. I know I'm a wretched, hell-deserving sinner. Therefore, if anything good is going to come out of me and out of my life, it must be because of God's grace. Hodge says, Christian humility does not consist in denying what there is of good in us but in, a, in an abiding sense of ill desert and in the consciousness that what we have of good is due to the grace of God. This is the confession of a genuine Christian. Real Christians confess that anything good within them or about them is the result of God's grace and undeserved kindness. If you see anything good in me, I can assure you I had nothing to do with it. I'll take the credit for all my sin. All the ugliness, all the evil, all the immorality. That's what I did. Oh, but anything good about me, brothers and sisters, anything in me that, that brings glory to God, anything in me that is a blessing to others, anything in me that is righteous and holy, that is entirely and completely the work of God alone. Amen. This is the power of His resurrection at work in my life. Amen. I walk in newness of life because Jesus walked out of the tomb. Amen. See, there's a sense in which you and I are no different than the Apostle Paul. Now, maybe you weren't a, a murderer before God saved you. Perhaps you never persecuted the church. But you were just as deserving of eternal condemnation as was Saul of Tarsus. 
The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse 23 that, the, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 tells us the, the wages of sin is death. Do you know what a wage is? It, it, on payday, on Friday, if your boss came up to you and handed you a paycheck and said, I've got a gift for you, you would say, no, that's not a gift. Those are my wages. I earned them. The wages of sin and death is death. And Brother David Morris likes to say, I worked hard for my wages. I spent my whole life working for those wages. God didn't give me condemnation. You, you realize God doesn't give anyone an eternity in hell. We earn it. We deserve it. We worked for it. We labored for it. We pursued our sin. It's what we deserve. But the gift of God Amen. is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Condemnation is by works, but salvation is by grace. Amen. Is there anybody here that can say with the Apostle Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. The reason why I'm a Christian, the reason why I love the Lord Jesus, the reason why I love the church, the reason why I love the things of righteousness and holiness is because Jesus rose from the dead. And when He rose from the dead, I rose with Him Amen. to walk in newness of life. So the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that you and I, before God saved us, were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead man do anything but rot and stink. Dead men don't get up on their own and decide to turn a new leaf. Dead men don't wake up in the morning and decide they're just going to change their sinful ways. Before you could make a choice to follow Christ and submit to Him as Lord, you had to be resurrected. You had to be pulled out of your grave. You had to be given new life. And because Jesus rose again, all of us who are united to Him rose with Him. Because you couldn't be resurrected from your grave if Jesus wasn't resurrected from His grave. But because He got up, we got up. There, there, there's a, a sense in which the resurrection is future. But there's a sense in which spiritually we've already tasted the first fruits of the resurrection. That's what it means for Jesus to be our substitute and our representative before God. When He died, we died. When He was buried, we were buried. And when He rose again, He brought us with Him. That's how Paul is able to say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. How can a crucified man live? 
only by the power of the resurrection. It has to be by grace. There's no other way. You see, there's no other way. Do you realize how, how radical this change is in the Apostle Paul? He went straight from being the young man that consented to the stoning of Stephen, who led a wave of persecution against the church, who hated those who followed Christ, to being the man who poured out his life for the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel. The, the change that happened in Saul of Tarsus would have been as if Adolf Hitler would have come out all of a sudden and said, you know what, I love the Jewish people and I'm going to spend the rest of my life serving the Jewish people. That's how radical this change is. As if Osama bin Laden would have come out and said, you know what, I'm going to become a humanitarian philanthropist for the rest of my life. His conversion to Christianity was such that nothing but the grace of God could account for it. But brothers and sisters, is not the same true of your conversion. How did you go from a lover of sin to a lover of God? How did you go from a life of debauchery to sitting on a church pew with a Bible in your lap? Did you just wake up one morning and think, you know... I ought to start making some better choices with my life. I, I, you know, I think I'll go to church and just become a Christian. That's the lie of modern religion that says that it's just all about you and your precious little choice and what you decide to do and God doesn't have anything to do with it. And so you walk an aisle and you pray a prayer and you get up and you pat yourself on the back. It's a lie that would have you believe that, that, that Paul was on the road to Damascus when all of a sudden he just had a change of heart. He just decided on his own, you know, I, I think I don't want to persecute the church anymore. In fact, when I get to Damascus, I'm going to ask them if they'll let me join, become a member. Has anybody read the ninth chapter of Acts? What happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul was dogmatically determined in his sinful desire to wipe out the church. And had God left him alone, that's exactly what he would have done. Paul was converted from his sinful path of destruction because on the Damascus road, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and opened his blinded eyes and called him by name. Saul, Saul. And if you're here this morning as a born-again child of God with a new heart and a new desire to live for His honor and His glory, that's exactly why you're here too. Because there came a day in your life in which the God of heaven looked down upon you in grace and He saw you running headlong for destruction and He called you out by name and said, follow me. Get up from your grave. Jesus did not just happen to be walking through Bethany. He's just walking through Bethany and he comes to the cemetery and all of a sudden he sees Lazarus coming out of the grave running after him saying, Jesus, Jesus, I want to be saved. No, Jesus goes to the grave. Lazarus in the tomb, covered in his grave clothes. Jesus comes, says, pull the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. That's what happened. That's salvation. If you're here this morning as a Christian, it's because you had a personal encounter 
with the risen Christ. By faith, you've seen him. And by faith, you've heard his voice. And by faith, you know that he rose from the dead because the proof of his resurrection is seen in the powerful impact that it's had upon your life. And that's something that he did by his grace. I don't, listen, I don't care what you want to call yourself. That's not true. You should call yourself the, the right theological terminology. But, but that, that's secondary in importance, okay? You don't want to call yourself whatever. You know if you're a real Christian, God saved you. You know that. Amen. You can call it what you want, okay? If you're right, you'll call it Calvinism. But call it what you want. If you're saved, you know that God saved you. You didn't save yourself. I didn't clean myself off. It's like the, the story of the little boy. You know, he's out playing in the mud. And he's, he gets, you know, his mom's told him, don't get dirty because you're going to have to come in for supper time. Don't get dirty. But he's going out and he's playing and, and he, he falls and he catches himself and he gets mud all over his hands. And, and, and he hears his mama calling him in for supper. And so he says, well, I've got to clean myself up. So he takes his clean hand and he tries to get the mud off his hand. And what happens? He just gets dirtier. That's what happens when we, apart from the grace of God, try to reform ourselves and change ourselves. We just get dirtier. We just fall deeper and deeper into sin. What we need is the grace of God to give us new life. Cleanse me, O God. Do what only you can do in my life. You might say, well, preacher, I don't know about that because... Well, sure, I was a sinner, but I wasn't as bad as Paul. I never killed anybody. I never persecuted anybody. But let me tell you something. There are various stages of decay, but there's only one kind of dead. Saul of Tarsus may have sunk down deeper into his depravity than you have. He may have had more time to rot than you have. He may have reached a greater level of stink than you have. But apart from the grace of God, you're just as spiritually dead as he was. I'll never forget the Sunday morning at Heritage Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, when Pastor Hank Rass just wrecked my whole world. When he, from the pulpit, made this statement. He was preaching on Pharaoh and Exodus, and he was talking about Pharaoh's evil, sinful heart. And he said, you may never have done the same things that Pharaoh did, talking about the decree to kill all of the the newborn Israelite children. He said, you may never have done something that evil, but if you're not saved, you have the same exact heart Pharaoh had. (sighs) He's right. There's not, there's not a spectrum, you see. It's not, it's not well, there's, there's the, the really awful, wicked, terrible people, and then there's the, the, the godly, righteous saints, and then you've got this whole spectrum in the middle of some people that are pretty good and some that are worse than others. No, there's people that are living and people that are dead. The same grace of God that saved Paul is the grace that we need to save us. Children... It's the same grace that you need. The same grace that saves drunks and drug addicts and fornicators and murderers is the grace that saves little children raised in Christian homes. God doesn't have one grace for for people like Saul and then another grace for people like you. 
So may God mortify our pride and may He help us to see that we are nothing but what He makes us by His grace. And let us say with Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. But then thirdly, I want you to see in this text the responsibility. Now the reflection, the recreation, but the responsibility. I told you about one lie of modern religion that says that God's grace is next to irrelevant in our salvation and that uh, we're, we're saved because we just make better choices than other people and we just decided to be Christians. But there's another lie. And it's a lie that says, because of grace, how we live as Christians doesn't matter. Here at the end of verse 10, though, brothers and sisters, Paul ties together the sovereign, efficacious grace of God with the impetus of human responsibility. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Paul includes this affirmation as if to say, I am what I am by the grace of God, And what I am includes the way in which I now live as a recipient of grace. Paul did not squander the grace of God in his life. He realized that the eternal horror from which he had been saved, and he refused to waste the new life that he was given. You ought to see your salvation not as just some, some fire insurance, not as just some free pass, some get-out-of-hell-free card. You ought to see your salvation as an opportunity to live the rest of your life for the glory of God, something you could have never done in your lost condition. God is able to restore lost years. God is able, through you, to make up for the times that you spent in unbelief. And Paul realized this. Paul was not a a, a young whippersnapper when God saved him. He was a grown man. He was already a, a prominent leader in Judaism when God saved him. And he realized, I don't know how much time I have left, and if I'm going to make the most of the grace of God, I better get to work. Some people have this this sad misconception in the church. They think that if they're saved later in life, then that that just must mean that they can't do as much as someone else that's saved younger. That's not true. It's not true. I I, I could tell you story after story and testimony after testimony of, of people that I've met personally that were saved in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, that understood what they'd been saved from and did more for the Lord than someone who was saved younger in life. They didn't have a deep appreciation for grace. Paul said, the grace of God which was bestowed upon me, it was not in vain. I didn't waste it. <laughs> but, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Who's the they, right? Well, it's the apostles. Verses 9 and 10 okay, are parenthetical. Right? He's, he's talking about all of the ones that had seen the Lord, and, and he's talking about the apostles, and he says, I'm the last of the apostles, and then he goes into this parenthetical statement, and he says, he says I labored more than they all, all those other apostles. <laughs> Even though I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, 
But because of God's grace, I labored more abundantly than all the rest of them. And, and this is undeniably true of the Apostle Paul. He, he preached more than any of the other apostles. He traveled more than any of the other apostles. He wrote more scripture than any of the other apostles. He planted more churches than any of the other apostles. His, his uh, epistles have had a greater impact on Christian theology than any of the other apostles. By grace, God made Paul into a mighty worker for his kingdom. And this statement is perfectly in line with the humility that Paul exhibits throughout the passage. Paul is not arrogantly boasting in his own achievements. See, if, if, we could, if we could just hear Paul say this, all the confusion would be clear. Paul, Paul is not standing on his high horse bragging about all the things that he's done. His goal is not for us to, to look at him and say, wow, what a great man. What a great preacher. In fact, if Paul were, were here at this church this morning, he probably wouldn't even like some of the things that I've said about him. He would say, brother, you're giving me too much credit. Paul's desires that we might look at him and say, wow, what a great God who can take this wretch of a man and make him a trophy of his grace. I've told you the story before of, of, of the two men from America that went to go hear Spurgeon preach in England. And then they, they, they go and they listen to him preach and they hear him preach on a Sunday morning and they're, they're talking about the sermon afterwards and, and, and one of them says, wow, what a great preacher. And the other man says, oh, but what a great God he preaches. So Paul goes on and he says, yes, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul, is it true that you went and traveled the known world in three separate missionary journeys? Yes, but only because God's grace was with me. Paul, is it true that you planted churches on multiple continents? Yes, but only because God's grace was with me. Paul, is it true that you preached the gospel to the emperor in Rome? Yes, but only because God's grace was with me. Paul, is it true that you wrote half of the New Testament? Yes, but only because God's grace was with me. The lesson that we learn from Paul is not what great things a man can do for God, but what great things God can do through a man. I, I was preaching chapel at the Christian school, and I, I told my, the students... You know, you, the world tells you that the problem uh, facing young people today is a self-esteem issue, that you need more self-esteem and you need to believe in yourself, and that's a bunch of hogwash. You don't need to believe in yourself. You need to believe in Him. Quit believing in what you can do, because Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. That's what you can do. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in Him. Don't believe in what you can do. Believe in what He can do through you. And He can do great things through you. All it takes is one man who has received the grace of God and says, Lord, I'm not going to receive this grace in vain. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
Paul is quick to add this phrase at the end of verse 10 because he wants to make sure that grace has the final word. He wants to make sure that all the glory and all the honor and all the credit goes to the one who rightly deserves it. And that one is God, not Paul. I've tried to, to, to train myself, to get myself into the habit. When I, when I go somewhere and when I preach and someone comes up to me at the end of the service and says, thank you for that sermon, what a great sermon. I, I try to just say, praise the Lord. See, humility is not denying good things. I'm not supposed to say, don't say that, it was a terrible sermon. Okay, so sometimes it might be, but that's not the response. And I'm also not supposed to, to, to rebuke the person for saying thanks. Good grief. Give me a break. I just want to make sure that that gratitude and that praise and that thanksgiving is redirected to the one who really deserves it. It's him, brothers and sisters. It's him. Let the lips of another praise you. We should praise one another. We should be thankful for one another. It's not, it's not unspiritual to... Be thankful and honor those to whom honor is due. But, but we, we must never honor the person in and of themselves. But we honor them because we see what God is doing in and through them. The way that God is being a blessing. I, you all are God's blessing to me. God is blessing me through you. And therefore, I'm thankful for you and I'm really thankful for Him. <laughs> That's how we need to look at ourselves and how we need to look at each other. God bestowed His grace upon you so that your life could be a vessel through which He receives praise, honor, and glory. If you struggle with self-worth and you struggle with, what, you know, what is my purpose in the world? That ought to help you. God gave grace to you so that your life could be a stage upon which His glory shines forth. There's no greater purpose. There's no higher calling his grace is not bestowed upon you in vain so long as you don't sit and do nothing with it. But God didn't save you so that you could sit around and twiddle your thumbs until you die. He saved you so that you could live a life in service to Him for His honor, for His glory, for His praise. What a privilege, brothers and sisters. What a blessing. Jesus said it Himself. You don't have to praise me. God, God could raise up these stones to praise me. But he didn't. He saved you. He chose you. He called you out. This is a higher dimension. You, you, you get that? It's a higher dimension. Yes, we're thankful God saved us from hell. And we look around and we see unbelievers and we're thankful that God saved me from hell. He's a, Praise God, I'm not going to hell. But there's a higher dimension and it's this. It's not only did He save me from hell, but He gave me the privilege to live for His glory. That's our higher motivation for evangelism too. When we go out and we preach the gospel, yes, we're preaching salvation. We're preaching salvation from eternal Condemnation, But there's a greater purpose. There's a greater offer that we're preaching. It's not just come and be saved from hell. It's come and live for the glory of God. <laughs> I hope and pray that, that this is the desire of your heart. I hope and pray that this will be your confession when you reach 
the last days of your life and you look back on all that God did through you, may you be able to say, God didn't give me His grace in vain. I, 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 I squandered my life before He saved me. But when I received His grace, I labored for His glory. I served in His kingdom. Yet not I, but His grace that was with me. He gave me that saving grace and He kept giving me grace and He kept giving me grace and it made me who I am. I was raised from death and trespasses and sins. I pressed forward in great expectation of the final resurrection on the last day. And I labored through the power of His resurrection presently at work in my life. There is a great responsibility upon those who have received saving grace. And there is a responsibility upon those who take part in the resurrection and have risen together with Christ. It's our responsibility to make the most of His grace in our lives. To live in such a way that we magnify His grace and bring praise to His name. And one day, when we hear our Father say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We will know that we did what we did because of His grace that was with us. That's how amazing grace is. Do you understand that? That's how amazing it is. God takes you and saves you and works through you and does it in you and then gives you the well done. What a good God. What a good God. So there's a responsibility. Fourthly, there's a reminder. Paul says, therefore, verse 11, so now he's, he's tying everything back in. So he's given this personal testimony. He's told us about how the power of the resurrection has has affected his life. He says, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach. He says, whether whether you heard the resurrection preached from Peter or Apollos or any of the other apostles, or whether you heard it from me, the resurrection is part of the gospel that is preached by every true minister. doesn't matter who preached it to you. What matters is that it's part of the gospel that is preached. And then he says this, and so ye believed. He concludes verse 11 by reminding the Corinthians that not only was the resurrection part of the gospel, but the resurrection was part of what they had already believed. He's saying to them, in other words, you can't deny the resurrection. You've already believed the resurrection. One of the things the Lord has taught me is that a lot of the ministry is simply reminding God's people what they already believe. When, when I said earlier, you know, if you're really saved, you know God saved you. I'm not telling you something new. I'm just reminding you of what you already believed. <laughs> He's exhorting the Corinthians not to turn away from the purity of the gospel that they believed at first when God saved them. Whenever, whenever I find myself struggling with with discouragement, or perhaps even struggling to see the grace of God at work in my life, which I do struggle with that. Uh, struggling with, you know, Lord, am I, am I really in your will? Am I really following you? Am I living in disobedience? Am I doing what you want me to do? Have I missed it? Have I missed the mark? It brings me great comfort to remind myself of what I believe. I don't know if, if, if you'll get this. I'll try to explain it to you. But it goes something like this. 
I preach the gospel to myself. And I remind myself that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on my behalf and died for me on the cross and rose again the third day. And I preach that to myself. But, but here's where the real kicker comes in. Here's where, the real, here's where I really get encouraged. And then I remind myself, and I believe it. And I believe it. Personally, I trust in it. I cling to it. I believe it. It's not just some message that I heard in vacation Bible school. It's something I live my life based upon. I believe it. And here's the reason why that brings me an immense comfort. Because the only reason why I believe it is because he opened my eyes and gave me the gift of faith to believe it. And so I say, Lord, I don't know about every little thing that's going on in my life and every little thing that's going on in my church, but I know this. I know you gave me faith to believe the gospel. And if you gave me faith to believe the gospel, you'll give me faith to believe everything else I need to believe. You'll give me grace to do everything else I need to do. Because I know that you loved me and you gave yourself for me and you rose again for me and praise the Lord, you're coming back for me. I take comfort in that. Maybe that'll help you. See, to, to deny the resurrection would be to deny my very existence as a Christian. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, I'm a lunatic. I am what I am by the grace of God. And the only reason I stand before you today with a desire to live for his honor and his glory is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus got up and took me with him. If he was still in his tomb, I assure you I'd still be in mine. But hallelujah, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Brothers and sisters, this is the power of the resurrection. And it is this resurrection that gives us a perspective on our lives whereby we know that we are what we are by the grace of God. Do you have that perspective upon your life? Grace is not bought. Grace is not earned. If it was, it wouldn't be grace. There's only one way to receive God's grace, and that is by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I plead with you, if you're not confident of your part in His resurrection, Come to Christ. Don't delay until it's too late. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come for you. I hope that you can go home and put your head on your pillow and point your toes toward heaven and say, I know that I am what I am by the grace of God. And then don't receive His grace in vain but receive His grace in order that you might live for Him and bring Him honor and bring Him glory as His grace goes with you. And in so doing, you will prove the resurrection of Christ by the effect that it has upon your life as a believer in Jesus. By grace, we died with Christ. By grace, we are raised with Christ. And by the grace of God, we are what we are. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the doctrine of the resurrection and not only for the theology of the resurrection, but for the practical impact of the resurrection. 
Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us in the grave of our sin. But you resurrected us and gave us new life. And we're here this morning as living stones, as, as living believers with a desire to praise you and to glorify you and to live for you. Father, we are what we are by the grace of God. This church is what it is by the grace of God. We rest in your grace and we trust in your grace. And we look forward to the day when by grace, our physical bodies are resurrected from the grave, reunited with our spirits, where we will forever be with you. Oh Lord, help us to labor more abundantly than they all, not for our own accolades or trophies, but for the praise of your holy and precious name, because we will labor, yet not us, for the grace of God that is in us. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.